All right, so uh, we're going to dig into Pascal and Clifford, Faith and Reason. Uh, and really what, what's, behind this, what's behind this discussion, uh, a couple ways to frame this question. One uh, is, you could say it something like this, is faith rational? Uh, that's maybe one way to say it. Uh, another way to say it is you could say something like, is faith reasonable? Uh, is it reasonable to have faith in God? Uh, or maybe a third way to say it, and this, all three of these have a little bit different nuance, uh, is faith provable by means of reason or, or something else? Um, and so part of what we're going to be wrestling with here is, you know, when you, when you do hear somebody like Richard Dawkins talk, uh, he would say faith is irrational. It, it's not rational. It's not reasonable. Uh, there's, there's really no reason that a person should have faith. And so, so faith and reason are seen uh, as in this deep conflict, uh, that to be a person of faith means to abandon reason, or to be a person of reason means that you uh, abandon faith. And so we're going to try to unpack a couple of three really different views on this. Uh, Blaise Pascal, a philosopher, uh, who is going to we'll talk a little bit about his wager and what's going on with that. Um, and then W.K. Clifford, because Pascal is going to say, uh, uh, give us uh, an argument for belief in God. Clifford's going to respond, uh, and he's sort of a 19th century Richard Dawkins type. Um, yeah, very much... Um, uh, an atheist, there is no real evidence for God. Uh, and then in our next session, we're going to look at William James, who gives what I think is, to me, is maybe one of the most interesting readings that we'll do uh, for this class, when he talks about, I think in a really nuanced way, how we think about faith and, and belief and how those work together. Um, before we dig into Pascal's wager, I want to talk a little bit about um, Pascal's overall framework. He says that there are two dangers uh, when it comes to this discussion of faith and reason. One danger is that we would exclude reason. In other words, we would say there, there is no place here for reason. Uh, the other danger is that we would admit or that we would use nothing but reason. So he sees these as uh, two dangers, two things to be avoided, that we would say that there's nothing uh, here that, that really should call for us to use our reason, our understanding, our rationality. That's a problem if we say, just shut your, shut your brain off. But it's also a problem if we say, reason is absolutely the only thing you can use to gain access uh, to truth. And so what I appreciate about Pascal is he's going to give us this, he's going to talk about uh, sort of three different paths to the truth. Um, and not, not kind of like in a religious sense, like, oh, there's Jesus and Buddha and whatever, but saying if we want to get at truth, we have to understand that the truth is more complicated than just a matter of rationality or reason or intellect. And so this, I love this quote. He says, one must know when it is right to doubt. So here's the three paths. To doubt, to affirm, to submit. Anyone who does otherwise does not understand the force of reason. Some men run counter to these principles, either affirming that everything can be proved because they know nothing about proof, or doubting everything because they do not know when to submit, or always submitting because they do not know when judgment is called for. So we're going to unpack this a little bit, but he connects these three things, doubt, affirm, submit, uh, with what he says is the goal here. This is the goal. If you're functioning good as a philosopher, and I think Pascal would say as a Christian, is to be three things. You should be a skeptic. You should be a mathematician. All right, that worries me a little bit because that, that was never my strong suit. Uh, a skeptic, a mathematician, and a Christian, which means you exercise doubt, affirmation, and submission at the right times and in the right degrees. Wait, he's, so, he's saying both at once. Yeah, so, so let me give you an example. He's, he's saying that to be, in some sense, to be a, a good thinker, to be reasonable, means you have to know which of these three you need to pull out of your tool belt to use in a certain situation. Okay, so I think about, you know, again, I'm not that good with tools, but I've gotten better after being a homeowner for about 10 years. Uh, you know, that when I, when I first bought my home, my, my toolkit consisted basically of like screwdrivers and a hammer. <laughs> right? So that was about it. That, that's what you could do. 
Um, well, what you start to learn is that uh, screwdrivers and a hammer are not enough to actually meet the needs of maintaining a home. And so you have to recognize that if you're going to be a good homeowner, you have to have a number of different things in your tool belt. And, and that expands beyond three things. But just to go with the metaphor, you need to know which tool you need in which circumstance. And so what he's saying here is there are some things and some circumstances where what you should do rightly is doubt. Understand when you should start from the place of a skeptic and say, I need uh, to doubt this so that I can move to a place of actually attaining some kind of proof. Uh, so that, yeah, if, if, um, if, if you think about a number of different scenarios, he would say it's perfectly right to ask for uh, some kind of proof or verification of what's being told to you. To say, how, how can I believe this? Can I be certain of this? Uh, that, that you kind of test it. He also says there are there's some kinds of truth uh, that simply have to be affirmed. And this is what he means when he says you have to know when to be just a good mathematician. Uh, 2 plus 2 equals 4. That's not really a proof you need to just understand that that is self-evident. And that to say two plus two is five is wrong because it will prove to me that two plus two is four. Well, if you can't see when I hold up two fingers and two more fingers that two plus two is four, yeah, that, that's not really an argument. You just need to affirm what is self-evident and what's right in front of your face. And math is kind of like that. Um, you know, when you think about, I think about like geometry theorems and all these things, if you remember flashback, uh, I hated that stuff, but it's like here, it's, it's just understanding how, how to connect different things that are self-evidently true, you know, 90 degree angles, et cetera, circles, diameter, whatever. Um, I'm, having, I'm having trouble now just thinking about that. It's going to be a very dark time. <laughs> um, but you think about skeptic, mathematician, uh, and then the third one he says is, is Christian, and this is connected to what he says in the quote about submit, uh, that what happens here is we realize that there are some truths that we that are true, but that we perhaps cannot prove and are not self-evident. So it's not that it's just obviously true like math, but it's also something that in some ways maybe goes beyond our capacity to even be able to prove. And so when you're faced with uh, a truth of that nature, I can't take the path of doubting it to prove it because I don't maybe have the capabilities of, of doing that. Um, and it's not something self-evident, but he's saying there's still something about submitting, especially uh, here to God's, he would say, to God's special revelation in Scripture, uh, that for a lot of that, the, the most reasonable thing to do is say, I can't prove it in this way, it's not self-evident, but I recognize that this is true because God has revealed it as true in his word. And so from his angle, his point is, you know, if God reveals something about who God is, it's pretty reasonable to trust what God says about God. After all, who is the expert on God? God. Uh, and so it's not so it's not irrational to say, well, I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna believe that. He's like, actually this it's reasonable to say this is also uh, a path to truth. Uh, and the danger, again, if we, if we go back to where we started, it is a problem to say uh, you never have to go this path of doubt and proof to attain truth. But it's equally a problem to say this is the one and only path to truth. Because if you do that, uh, you're going to end up actually uh, cutting out uh, other things that are true, and then it would be reasonable to believe because you're so narrowly focused on this one out of three paths um, to the truth. And so I think that's helpful to kind of see where Pascal is coming from uh, and, and to understand what's going on uh, a little bit in, in his wager. Uh, now Pascal's wager is, is pretty famous, but a lot of times, as in this textbook, uh, it comes kind of out of the context of the rest of his writing, including stuff like this, because you don't find this in the reading for today. This is, uh, this is from elsewhere in Pascal's writing. Um, but Pascal's major has to do with how do we think about belief in God. And the main idea here is, is, is that um, it's, a, it's a good bet to bet on God. Uh, and in fact, it's, 
probably the best bet you could ever possibly make is, is part of Pascal's point as he thinks about this. And so one entry point, I can think about it this way with, with a couple of analogies um, that helped me to wrap my mind around a little bit what, what Pascal is doing. Um, if, if I am, so let's say I'm on a walk with a couple of my kids, uh, walking around my neighborhood, I'm about a mile away from my house, yeah. uh, and somebody comes running up to me uh, and is like, dude, your house is on fire, mm. right? The rest of your family's there, your house is on fire. What is, what's the reasonable course of action to take if somebody, if I was confronted with that situation? Is it to say, well, that's a very interesting proposition that my house is on fire. Um, but I don't know you, and I don't have any evidence of what you're saying is true, and so I'm going to continue my leisurely stroll, because all strolls are leisurely when you have five children. <laughs> right, that I'm going to continue my leisurely stroll, and whatever, because I, I have no reason, right, there's no evidence that what you say is true. Um, or would it be more reasonable to sprint as fast as I can back to my home to understand the situation, see what's going on, make sure my family is safe, et cetera. I think most people would say, even if there was no evidence, even if you didn't know this person, it would be reasonable to sprint back to your home. Uh, why? Because if they're right, something big is at stake. But if they're wrong, you haven't lost anything. In fact, you've just gotten a little bit of extra exercise <laughs> for sprinting back to your home. Yeah. And so part of the point here is when you think about uh, the stakes involved and what this sort of the setup of this wager is say even if you don't have the kind of evidence that you might want, it still makes sense to act on that, on that situation. That would be reasonable to do that. Similarly, if somebody were to say to you, uh, if you were diagnosed with a terminal disease, right, you're going to die from this disease in six months. But the doctors say we have a trial drug that we think can possibly cure this disease. Um, but we're not 100. We can't. We can't 100% guarantee that there are uh, maybe some possible side effects, some other things we don't fully know about or understand yet. Um, is it reasonable to say, well, I'm going to take a chance on the drug, even though I don't have all the information, even though we don't have all the reason, uh, reasons behind you know, fully understanding it? Most people would say it's reasonable to take it. If somebody said, well, I don't know, what if one of the side effects is up to and including death? Well, the point is, you already have a terminal disease. You're already going to die. And so, the risk here is pretty minimal compared, compared with the possible reward of healing from the disease. And so Pascal's wager is a little bit like this that, that says, when you look at the stakes involved, like what you can gain, and then when you look at what you can lose, uh, it really just makes sense in the same way it makes sense to sprint off for your house in the same way it makes sense to, to try this drug. So it also makes sense to believe in God. Even if you don't have maybe the, ev the, the evidence that you might want, uh, or even if you don't have all the information you might want, it's still overall, when you look at the wager, uh, makes sense to do this. Now, I think it's important to understand a couple of things. Uh, because, you know, when I, when I explain it this way, I want to make clear, Pascal is not saying that this wager uh, is sort of the evidence of deep, mature Christian faith. Right? Like if somebody's been a Christian for 30 years and you're like, oh man, why are you a Christian? Well, they say when you think about it, uh, it's really a wager. <laughs> right? And all things considered, the benefits of believing in God far outweigh the risks of him not actually existing. And so I'm just, my whole Christian life is based on this kind of intellectual wager. <laughs> that, that's not what Pascal is doing here. He's not saying... Um, he's not saying that this is sort of what deep, mature Christian faith looks like. Yeah. Uh, rather, this is just, it, it, what it is, I think, is a thought experiment to get the ball rolling, especially for people uh, who, might, who might say, look, I will only believe something unless I have 100% proof, 100% evidence, right, in this way. Uh, like, I'm a skeptic, you've got to lay it all out before me, and so unless you can 
100% prove to me that, that there is a God, I'm not going to take a step. And his point here is like, well, maybe even if you can't 100% prove it, think about it this way. And, and in that way, part of what he's doing here, I think, is just trying to get his foot in the door a little bit. Uh, to say, think about what's going on yeah, yeah. Um, and think about the role of, of doubt and reason and proof as you, as you look at this. And one of the key things that, that he's laying out here um, in your textbook on page 128, where he's like talking about the, the infinite and the existence of the infinite in nature and what is, being, what is going on. Here, here's what I want you to get from that. Um, his, his key premise, he's going into this saying there are uh, limits to our knowledge. And, and so he's, what he's saying here is that um, he says, you know, if you think about finite things, uh, right? That was interesting. Uh, if, you think, if you think about finite things, but limited things, like, like you and me, or animals, or trees, or anything else you might see, he's like, we can know finite things because we're a finite thing. So I can wrap my mind around, you know, what is a dog? Yeah. It's pretty, it's, right, it's something you can understand. Um, he says, what, he does say, when you think about uh, the infinite, and here he's even thinking about math, like there's a sense in which we can know that there is such a thing as infinity, but we can't really know what it is because it goes beyond our ability to grasp. Yeah. But his point about God is God is, is in a lot of ways so far beyond us that we don't have the capability uh, to wrap our minds around God the way we can around these finite things or mathematical principles or other things. So part of what he's actually... He, in, in some sense, he's on the same page as somebody who is an agnostic. Somebody's like, I just don't know if we can really ever really know for sure if there is a God or not. Because a lot of people, I think, hold this because they do recognize there are limits to our knowledge. Like, this just seems beyond me. Like, even if there is a God, I don't understand. I can't wrap my mind around it. We can't really prove it. So we just have to live in this place where we recognize we're, we're limited with our knowledge. And so he, he's actually saying, yeah, that's fine. Let's start there. Let, let's assume that, yeah, there is this limit to our knowledge that we can't just use our reason to build our way up to God because God is so far beyond that. But part of what he's doing in this, uh, the philosopher uh, Peter Kreeft compares this to, think about going to a casino, if you would for some reason. I don't know why. Uh, one time I went, I was like, why does anyone ever go here? I like walked in and just kind of looked around. It's a sad place. Uh, uh, right. At least that's how that's how it appeared to me. Maybe other people have had positive experiences there with uh, I don't know all you can eat buffets and <laughs> outdated musical artists. Uh, <laughs> but when we think about reason, his point is that if you're trying to play, if you're trying to play the game, so to speak, with reason, and the prize is I would use my reason to get truth about God's existence. It's almost like saying you can't actually play this game with these chips. That, that's not on the table because of the limits of our knowledge. Um, it would be nice, it would be nice if we could have access to this uh, and, and maybe totally use our minds and our human reasoning and understanding to work our way up this. But part of what Pascal is saying is maybe, maybe we can't play the game with these blue chips, but maybe there's a way to think about playing these games, uh, this game with the red chips. And, and so this is where he's thinking more about our, our will or our desires as human beings. And what he's getting at here is like maybe, maybe there's not this truth that we can access simply through our reason, but maybe when we look at who we are as human beings, um, maybe there's something else that we can tap into. And part of what he, he notes, um, he actually he follows Augustine here, he's a good Augustinian, is that human beings have this deep desire for fulfillment. That we have this, uh, Augustine says it uh, in this way, that our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Mm -hmm. Part of what he's identifying is that we, we long for a kind of supreme happiness and fulfillment. Uh, and we often try to meet that desire through other things. And so uh, Aquinas in his writing talks about, well, you know, maybe we can meet the supreme desire through money. Or maybe we can meet the supreme desire uh, through pleasure. And what starts to happen is if you look at all these candidates for meeting this desire for fulfillment, is it turns out all of these candidates, like money uh, or power or fame, uh, all are things that can be lost. And so you can try to hold on to them, but ultimately uh, you will lose them. God is the one thing that cannot be lost because he actually 
holds us. And so this kind of desire for fulfillment, you know, Pascal says maybe this is a clue that there really is something going on here, that this desire can actually be fulfilled by something who goes beyond any of these, uh, you know, contingent, limited, creaturely things. Yeah. And so Pascal is trying to tap into that, like, uh, and think about if that's an avenue, uh, that's a way for us to process um, belief in God. I mean, I think about, you know, if you ever read the kids' kids books, um, you know, I read Winnie the Pooh books to my kids. Um, imagine a world where Winnie the Pooh loved honey, but there was no such thing as honey. Where he just, <laughs> right, where it's like, he just, right, he loves honey, it's what he thinks about, he's constantly seeking it, but there is no such thing as honey. Part of what Pascal is saying is like, when you look at human beings, it seems like we have this deep desire for true fulfillment. <clears throat> Uh, and that maybe that's a clue to the fact that there is someone who can ultimately meet that fulfillment, even if you can't rationally prove God. Yeah. For the, for the Winnie the Pooh example, um, is it is it better said like like, or I guess I'm not better said. Sorry. Like 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 to, like to fully iterate where, where you're bringing that point to fully. Like is it to say what if Winnie the Pooh loves honey, but then someone says. There's no honey, like someone's a lady, yeah, yeah. But, but obviously like they're wrong because his love for it is showing it. Like, is that where you're bringing that to say? Sorry, I'm just. Yeah, yeah, no, that yeah, that's right. Somebody say, you know, I can't rationally. This is pushing the example too far. But I can't yeah. rationally prove that there is such a thing. That, that maybe there's a clue to the fact that there is, and in, in the fact that he Long desires it, yeah. wants that, wants yeah. that thing. Okay. So, um, yeah. And so that's so that's part of similar to what Pascal is, is doing here. Thank you so much. Um, now, this, this, to me, this is really important to get. If you have your textbooks at the top of page, or the bottom of page 128, top of page 129. Um, so part of what Pascal is wrestling with is that, okay, uh, we, in some sense, we have to make a wager because we're not able to rationally prove or disprove uh, God. And at the bottom of page 128, the right-hand side, he says... Uh, let us examine this point and say God is or he is not. Okay, so that's, that's, the, that's the statement in front of us that we have to evaluate. And then he says, but to which side shall we incline? Reason can decide nothing here. Okay, so that's the point. So he's acknowledging the, the limits of reason, the limits of our knowledge. Reason can't do this. There is an infinite chaos which separates us. A game is being played at the extremity of this infinite distance where heads or tails will turn up. So what will you wager? And at the top of page 129, he says, according to reason, you can do neither the one thing nor the other. According to reason, you can defend neither of the propositions. And so the, the problem here, and maybe I should put problem in quotes, but, but the problem here is that reason can't lead you to make this decision. Reason alone is insufficient to help you decide what you should wager on. God is or he is not. Uh, so this is where, again, we go back. He's saying... There are no blue chips to play in this game. There's only red chips. There has to be something else that we're going to think about to help us decide where are we going to put our, our, our chips on God is or God is not. But then he continues, and, and this, is, this is really crucial. The next paragraph on page 129, he says, Do not reprove for error those who have made a choice, for you know nothing about it. And then, so this, in quotes here, he's imagining somebody saying this. He's imagining somebody saying, um, no, but I blame them for having made not this choice, but a choice. For again, both he who chooses heads and he who chooses tails are equally at fault. They're both in the wrong. The true course is not to wager at all. So this is the approach of somebody who is agnostic, who would say, well, if reason can't tell you which of these you should go toward, then you just have to sit out the game. Right? If reason, if reason doesn't give you the answer, then you just have to say, I don't know. I'm not. And so, I, so I'm critical of people because, not because they've chosen heads or tails, I'm critical of them because they're playing the game at all. They just should not play this game because reason can't decide. Wait, who, who is the audience of, of, of that criticism? That's people who are opposing God or people who are opposing Either, people who are People who are theists and say God is, or even people who are saying there is no God. So, so his point here, the, the, the point, the uh, recipients of this criticism are people who are making a choice 
But the problem is they're making this choice based on something other than reason because reason can't tell you which choice to make. And so his, his point here is people are saying, uh, you're wrong, not for going for one of these two options over the other one, but you're wrong simply because you've chosen one of these. Because the only way you can make a decision about this is to use something other than reason to make that decision. And that's wrong. You should only ever use reason to make your decision. And if reason can't tell you what to choose, then you don't make any choice at all. But, but that's not, like, he's not saying That's that. not what Pascal is saying. Yeah. That, that's who he's, that, that's who, the, who he's responding to. And so here, so the crucial point, um, <laughs> his crucial point is this. He says, you must wager it's not optional. You are embarked, is the way he says it. In other words, you're, it's not like you're on dry ground saying, which, you know, where are we going to sail this ship? His point is, you're already on the ship. By definition, you have to make a choice. And so this is where, again, uh, Peter Kreef, philosopher, uses this analogy um, of Romeo and Juliet. Imagine Romeo goes to Juliet and says, uh, you know, Juliet, yeah, our families don't get along that great, etc. Um, but I really love you. Will you marry me? And she says, well, that's a really big decision. Can you come back in a day? Not usually the response you're going for in that circumstance. But, uh, but you know, it's like I want to really think this through. And so Romeo comes back the next day. Juliet, will you marry me? And she says, this is a really big decision. Um, give me a week to think about it. Uh, so he comes back in a week, and she says, hey, give me another month. And then he comes back in a month, and she says, give me a year. And then she says, give, you know, just give me more time. The, the point here, uh, the point here is that to not make a choice is to make a choice. Oh. Right? To not make a choice is, in effect, no. Yeah. Right? Because at some point, Romeo and or Juliet are going to die. Hopefully not of self-inflicted wounds like in the way, but whatever in our example. Um, and so Pascal wants people to see that, yeah, reason can't decide, but you still have to make a choice. And, and so, you know, when you think about it this way, <coughs> the way that I would say it is, there is no such thing uh, as a practical agnostic. In other words, you have to get out of bed every day and decide how are you living your life. And how you live your life shows something about what is the ultimate point, purpose, meaning of life, where do I find ultimate happiness, fulfillment. That's what Pascal is getting at here. And that if we understand this properly, um, nobody can sit out this game. Nobody can not wager. Everybody has to play. Yeah. Uh, and so for, for me, this is really helpful, not in responding necessarily to somebody like Richard Dawkins, who's an out-and-out, -out, you know, hardcore atheist. It's actually much more helpful for actually trying to think through how do you connect with somebody who is an agnostic, who's like, I don't disbelieve in God. I just think you can't really know, and so I can't really oh. make a decision. And so somebody who's like, well, I can't really know. I can't really make a decision. It's like, yeah, but you are making a decision every day. Dang, what thank you're doing you. with your life that tells you something about, if you go back to the, uh, the previous slide about your will, desires, and this desire for fulfillment and happiness, that tells you something about what you think is ultimate. Um, and you, so even if reason can't get you there, yeah. you have to see you're still making that decision. Yeah. Okay. Everybody's making that decision. Um, and so Pascal is, is so helpful because he helps us see nobody's on the sidelines. Mm -hmm. um, everybody's, everybody's in the game. Yes. And so to, to sort of set out his wager uh, in kind of four steps, his point is every player stakes certainty for an uncertainty. Um, and, and by certainty, he means, you know, you're, there's certain things that we know about our life that we can expect about our life. Um, that we're saying we're staking our life to some degree on something we're not 100% rationally certain of. But that's true for everybody. Again, theist, atheist, whoever, uh, that you don't have 100% rational guarantee about where this might go. Uh, the risk factor is equal. Uh, in other words, it's, it's not riskier to believe in God than not believe in God. It, it's the same risk across the board. Uh, everybody's taking a risk. But, and, and here's, where, here's where the difference comes. If you believe in God, so the risk is equal, but if you believe in God, the potential gain is infinite. 
right? an infinite life of happiness, fulfillment, and blessing for all eternity enjoying the presence of God, the potential loss is when I say, well, what if there is no God? Well, then we're all just food for worms, which is really, I'm losing the same thing you're losing. Like, I'm not losing more because I believed in God and there was no God. I'm losing the same thing as the person who says, I don't really think there is a God. They turned out to be right. We're both, lo we're both losing the same thing. Um, but if there is a God, my potential gain is infinite, and, and then their potential loss is infinite. Right? What there is to lose, if there is, no, if there is a God, but I don't believe in God, what I have to lose is, is huge. Uh, and so his point here is that if we actually look at, look at this, uh, this way of setting it up, What's it? Atheism is a terrible bet. Ooh. Uh, that. Now again, I'm not saying take Pascal with you uh, when you're trying to like witness about who Jesus Christ is to your friends and family. Yeah. Like, let me set it up for you so you can see atheism is a terrible bet. But he, again, he's just trying to help you see how to get your foot in the door and think about really what's at what's at stake here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and and how this works. Yeah. Well. So how's the risk factor equal? Because like. I think you're risking more to not believe in God. Yeah, yeah. So he means risk factor in terms of, um, it, yeah, de he would definitely say you're risking more um, as an unbeliever if yeah. there's no God. I think to, to talk about risk factor in that way, it's saying it's more about the certainty. Every player's taking something about their life. Yeah. Uh, like this is going to affect how I live my life and where that goes. And so from that perspective, um, the, the risk factor there is is equal for everybody all the way around, and the person who believes in God is not making yeah. more of a it's not more of a risk. Yeah. So that. like, if an atheist decides to believe in God, he's risking his like reputation and how other people think of him. Like that yeah. Part of it. Yeah. I mean, there could be that dimension of it as well. Well, the, and, and this is where Pascal even says like, if the believer in God is wrong. You know, yeah, they maybe they lose this afterlife piece, but on the whole, they probably love their neighbor better, and like right. better, maybe there's some dimension of like uh, being better in that way, even in this life, that is improved by believing in God, even if there is no God. So, cool. yeah. it, it, it sounds like Pascal, like, like more so, like concerned like the like the eternal, like in this kind of whole like loss and gain. How they, I don't, I don't know if it's, if it's as much talking about like like the now, like in this argument that we read, but more so like the like the eternal, you know, so. But I think there's something to be said for the now. Yeah. In this concept. Yeah. Well, and what, so I, I want you to see here, which I think this is really instructive, how Pascal responds to somebody who says, uh, I can't believe. Uh, he says this in the bottom of uh, page 129, the right hand column. You know, he imagines somebody saying, like, well, I hear your argument, um, that's what it is, um, but I just find it hard to believe. And I think that's interesting, because we'll come back to this with William James, but part of what you see here is that your belief is, it's not something that you can just switch off and on. Uh, and so, in other words, like if I say you should believe the sky is orange, not blue, you could even say, I believe the sky is orange, but deep down you don't really believe that, because like your belief isn't just this thing like I can just like a switch, I can just flip it, and then I believe these things. Like, yeah. there's this sense in which our intellect and our will and our belief, those things are all intertwined. And so Pascal says, imagine somebody says, I can't believe that there are these different obstacles. His, his response here is interesting. First, he says, act like you do believe. So, so first, start acting like this. Um, do what people who believe do. And so, you know, he's writing this from a Roman Catholic uh, context, so it sounds a little bit more. He talks about uh, taking holy water, having masses said, etc. His point is like, if you want to believe in God, act like people who believe in God. Go to church, etc. Sing the songs, hear the sermons, yeah. um, and what you might find is that you actually do start believing as you surround yourself with other people who believe, and as you yourself begin to act like this. Um, one interesting example of this, uh, probably about 15 years ago, there was a book called The Year of Living Biblically uh, by a guy named A.J. Jacobs, who uh, was a, is a secular, non-believing Jew, 
but was like, I'm just going to try to like do everything the Bible says, which partly shows that, <laughs> right? He's a good example of why you have to always pay attention to context and not read the Bible just as a uh, instruction, book. instruction book of things that have no context. Um, but part of what's interesting is he, as part of this, he starts uh, praying the Psalms, and he talks about how this this uh, discipline of praying the Psalms on a regular basis actually starts to transform him uh, to some degree. I don't think he would say that he's maybe a full believer in the way that uh, an Orthodox Jew or, or Christian would necessarily say, but what you see is like there's something that happens yeah. right, in this activity that actually does have an effect on you. And so we often think about it in terms of like um, my belief just affects my actions, but part of what Pascal I think is pointing out is our actions also affect our beliefs, right? That those go both ways, and so that, so that those are inter, those are intertwined. So Pascal says, act like you do, uh, and that this will lessen your passions. And, and what he means by that really is, um, you know, our passions, these different dimensions of us that maybe uh, don't want to believe, but but maybe don't want to believe for bad reasons, right? I think like if we're honest, sometimes maybe we don't, we including Christians don't want to believe in God because that means something that we maybe don't fully like. Like, I don't like the idea of somebody having authority over me. Yeah, yeah. And so that's not really a rational, that's not it's a, that's not a rational or a, a belief that appeals to reason. It's something that gets at something about my passions or emotions, my sense of, like, I don't want to be accountable or responsible to anybody. Oh, um, no. And so his point is that as you do this, part of, part of what we need to work on is thinking about those other dimensions of our life that maybe stand as obstacles to belief in God, but that need to be, that need to be addressed. Mm. Um, and so I think, you know, what I like about this is Pascal, I think, helps us start to think through this question, why do people really believe uh, or not? Uh, that the reason people really believe or not is not simply, <coughs> is, is not simply based on reason. It's not simply based on intellect. It's not simply based on kind of cold, calculating evaluation of the data at hand. That our beliefs are a lot more complex than that. That we believe for a whole host of reasons, um, some of which are good, some of which are not good, but, but what Pascal does, I think, in this is at least opens us up to see that there is more at play, and maybe rightly so, that there's more at play than simply our reason, than simply our understanding. Uh, and so when we get to William James, we'll see how he expands on this and, and un unpacks it more. Uh, but uh, I want to see, uh, I want to take a few minutes and look at how W.K. Clifford uh, talks about belief, very different from Pascal. Um, and so Clifford writes after the time of, of, of Pascal by about 150, 200 years, if I recall. Um, and part of what's interesting about this is uh, even in the title of his essay, He's got a pretty good view. Um, <laughs> part, of, part of the title of, of his essay is The Ethics of Belief. And so part of what he's getting at here uh, is that uh, there is this, there's this deeply ethical component to what we believe or not. It, it's not simply should I believe this in terms of what does the evidence show, uh, but that whether I believe, how I believe, what I believe, that, that there's a kind of shouldness or oughtness to things that we should believe uh, or not, that there is this moral component uh, to, my, to my belief. So part of what he's engaging in this writing, uh, Clifford is asking this question, do you have the right, the philosophical right, not the political right, but do you have the philosophical right to believe in God? Um, he's saying, is it rational? Is what he's saying? Yeah, well, he's asking, you know, I mean, he's imagining, somebody says, I believe in God. He would ask, from, from a philosophical angle, have you checked the boxes that you should check to hold a belief? And usually, like with most of our beliefs, this is part of what we recognize, is that there is some kind of process. Maybe it's a different process, like Pascal was saying, maybe it's a, there's kind of three different paths. Uh, but we would still say there's some kind of process that you should walk through for holding the belief that you do. So if you think... Um, if you think capitalism is better than socialism, I think a lot of people do. Amen. Yes. Uh, 
but why? Why do you think it's better? What's, what's the reason for that? Um, other than America. Okay. Hashtag America. Um, and so to actually be able to articulate and explain to some degree, because if you say, I believe that capitalism is better than socialism, and somebody says, why? And your answer is, I don't know, or because that's what my parents told me, or that's what whatever. We might say, that's not a very good reason, or, or at least it doesn't seem like a very good reason for holding to what you hold. Yeah. And so similar, if somebody says, I believe in God, why? Because my parents told me, or because you know, I've just always thought about it. <coughs> so say, that's not a good philosophical reason. And, and part of the question is, are there any good philosophical reasons that you could walk through and check the box and say, yes, I can check these boxes so I can say I have the right to this belief. Um, Clifford, I think, if, if we follow his argument, is going to say, no, there's no way to kind of check the boxes and say, yes, you have the right to believe this. Um, but he's going he's gonna to help us think through, I think, um, again, what it means to be people who walk this path of faith-seeking understanding. Uh, and what what that means for how we're processing our belief in God. So his main thesis, uh, if you have your textbook, this well, this is actually kind of his thesis slash summary statement. This is on page one thirty-five, toward the very end uh, of the reading. Uh, this I think is 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 helpful to see what he's building to and what he's defending throughout this. So on page one thirty-five, the left-hand column, uh, the first full paragraph, about eight lines down, he says this. To sum up, it is wrong always, everywhere, and for anyone to believe anything upon insufficient evidence. Ugh, what a crazy statement. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, it's, it's pretty uh, exclusive or inclusive, depending on how you look at it. He's saying, the way to say it more positively is that to have this right to believe, not just in God, but to believe anything, to say, I have this belief, and it's philosophically justified, you have to have sufficient evidence for it. Okay? So there must be sufficient evidence. Uh, so to illustrate this, he starts out by talking about the story of a shipwreck. Um, and he says, you know, imagine a, a ship owner who's going to sail his ship across the ocean uh, and somebody says, you know, is this, is, and, they, and this ship owner says, yes, my ship is seaworthy. It can make it. Clifford's point is, you can't just say that. You have to have good reasons that would validate that belief. Uh, and so part, this, this is a really crucial distinction, actually for Clifford, for, but for Dawkins and for many others. The key distinction here is not the truth of the statement. Um, it's not, is the statement true? Uh, this ship uh, is seaworthy. So a lot of times, this is how we, we do think about these things on this axis of uh, true and false. But what Clifford is introducing is saying, think about that maybe there's a whole separate axis going on here. Uh, and that is this question of, is this belief justified? Uh, and this is another way, we won't go into the theology piece of justified. justified. So by justified here, he means, do you have sufficient reasons to believe this, or to be not justified, or not warranted, uh, is to not have good or sufficient reasons for believing something? Um, this is really important because Clifford is actually less concerned about the true or false piece, and actually more concerned about this justified or not justified. Dang. So in other words, um, it's all about the process. Not, not is your belief true, but do you have the good reasons or good process to support this? So you think about from, from this story, uh, from Clifford's perspective, yeah, there are a number of things that a ship owner could do to be justified in their belief. Um, they could inspect the ship themselves. Probably more likely they could have somebody who is a ship builder, not just a ship owner. A ship builder inspect the ship and say, yes, it's good, uh, it's, it's seaworthy, uh, it, can, it can do what you want it to do. Uh, and Clifford would say then, yeah. 
if you've gone through that process, <clears throat> then the ship owner yeah. is justified in their belief. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Now there's, now, now here's where things, uh, you know, it, it can get interesting because I think, you know, think about, as I think about this process, I would say, yeah, if you're a ship owner, I think about it from the perspective of a car, since I'm a car owner. Uh, <laughs> if I think, oh, my car can make this trip, how do I become justified in that belief? Well, partly because of my past knowledge of the car, or if I take it to the mechanic, my mechanic tells me, yeah, this car is good to go for this trip. I have not personally inspected the car, but somebody who knows what they're doing has, and so even though I personally, because I'm not a mechanic, right, me looking over the car would be worthless, right? Because I'm like, what am I looking for? Well, I don't know, unless like, the engine is falling out of it. I, what am I, how am I gonna know if this is uh, gonna make the trip or not? Yeah. And, and so, so part of that means that when we think about what counts as a sufficient reason, partly, at least one dimension of sufficient reason, note, is trust. That you trust what someone else says. That you trust, specifically, the way we usually think about this, you trust an expert. You trust somebody who actually knows something about um, the, the issue of the question. Um, and so again, to highlight from Clifford's perspective, this is on page 132, he says the question is not whether the belief was true or false, but whether they entertained it on wrong grounds. And so even think about this, his point is, you know, even when you think about theistic belief, he's less concerned about whether there is a God or not, whether that statement is true or false. He's more concerned about what is the process whereby you validate that belief. What's the process by which you come to say, yes, I can believe this, or no, I shouldn't believe this. Yeah. Um, that, is, that is more crucial for him. Yeah, Taylor, question. Um, thank you. Uh, quick question is, is um, when you said like your car and you got it checked and you feel like it in there for you're justified and thinking that it will make the trip, is like, like the difference between true and justified is that you can be justified in saying that it's good to make the trip because of the expert, but then it's, but then through, through actually making the trip, it falls apart or does, like either it does or doesn't fall apart, it shows whether or not it's true. Like yeah. so if it falls apart, for example, just to pick something, then it was justified reasoning, but it was not true because it, it did not actually make the trip. So right. like, could, could that kind of like work out the way where you are this, but you actually aren't that because of whatever reason? Yeah, and that's where we often, if you think about this this axis here, the true, false, and justified, not justified, usually, you know, the, the, the simpler ones are things that are here, things that are true and that are justified, or things that are false and not justified. But things can be, uh, you can say something could be justified, I could have a justified belief that's false. Yeah. So yeah, I take the car to my mechanic, but for whatever reason, my mechanic was having a bad day, or. Yeah. Whatever missed something, yeah. and so I am justified in believing my car can make the trip, yeah. but that's actually a false belief. Yeah. The belief isn't true. Yeah. And so this, I think, is interesting because you can start to think about, especially when you dig into religious belief, people of different faiths or people of no faiths, there, you can say somebody's justified in holding a belief, but also that it's a false belief. Mm. Does that make sense? Like I could say, here's a person who is from a different religious faith, and I would say as a Christian that that's not a true belief, it's false. Amen, amen. But I could also say, but I can, un but actually they are justified in holding it because maybe this is what they've been taught their whole life or this is what they've seen and they, this is even the filter of their experience. Yeah. So there's a sense in which they may be justified in holding to that even if it's false. Um, now, and this is the other interesting one over here is uh, beliefs can be true, but also not justified. This is, this is yeah. what, is an interesting test case. So, uh, the, car. The, sh the car, the ship, yeah. the car can make the trip. That's a true belief. Yeah. But, you know, I think about a lot of times, I mean, I didn't really even think that, when I was in college, I wasn't thinking my car to be okay. Like, just check this out for yeah. a moment. Yeah, yeah. Who does that? Nobody. <laughs> uh, right? Now, I, you know, I do that a little bit more now I have a family with five kids because if something goes wrong, it's not just me by the side of the road, it's the whole family. Oh. Uh, and so, a lot, and so in a lot of ways, you might have that true belief, my car can make this trip. You just might not be totally justified in it. 
Um, and then we can start debating, you know, this is where you get into the nitty-gritty, well, my car's always worked before, you know, I haven't had any trouble with it. So, yeah, sure, you know, it's a relatively new car, it's in yeah. pretty good condition. So, yeah, overall, then maybe you are justified in that belief because of your past experience with the car, um, but you never know. So, how, how, you, how, you, how you think about those things um, is important if we kind of dig into the nitty-gritty of each specific situation and think through what counts as a sufficient reason or not. Yeah, I I just have one more pushback on this. Just just to hear what like like kind of like what you said too, just so I can understand maybe the limits of this thought of this chart is um like going back to the first example of if you are justified in making you went to the expert, you're justified in the car. Let's say it doesn't make it. Yeah. And you say, well, I was justified, but it didn't actually work out. Like if then like like a friend let's say comes in and says. Tell me why you were justified. If you say, I was a mechanic, and they say, when your car didn't make it, that shows that you actually were not justified because your mechanic is, is a bad mechanic and, and, and you should have you know, went to an upper town mechanic instead. So you were not justified. And, and, and then they argue that the falseness will ult automat or ultimately, or not false, yeah, like, like, like the, the car doesn't make it the fault, you have fake false at the bottom there, ultimately yeah. proves that, that, that you didn't fully get, like, get justified. Like So like I guess that kind of brings in like, what. Well, like, yeah, I guess your thoughts on that. Well, yeah. So then, part of what you're part of what you're discussing uh, is the question of what what counts as sufficient reason. Like, I have my mechanic look at it, yeah, and they're like, well, to be sufficiently to be sufficiently justified, it has to be a good mechanic. Yeah. But your mechanic's not very good because they missed this. And then you're like, well, wait, but hold on, my mechanic is good. Even good mechanics might sometimes make mistakes mm -hmm. or miss something. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I would want to be clear that. Just because it's just because something's false doesn't mean it's necessarily not justified. And is this like you're saying this is true, or you're saying this is what Clifford, whoever did this is? What well, that's what I'd say, and I, I think Clifford would agree to that as well. Is you can't have you can't have beliefs that are false that are justified. That is part of what I'm just saying is yes, there are things that are in this part of the of the diagram. Yeah. Uh, and and that part of what your friend and you are trying to sort out in that conversation is. What does count as sufficient reason? Because it's not just having any mechanic look at it, it's having a good mechanic look at it. And that comes out, and, and so then part of what you're thinking about is like, to have a good mechanic look at it does mean I'm justified in holding that belief. And then you're establishing my mechanic is good. Uh, and so therefore, even though they're good, that doesn't mean they're perfect, they didn't miss anything. You know, maybe there's something going on that nobody saw. I mean, even if you use the example of the, you know, the Titanic or something, I think most people would say, for the most part, that people were justified in believing that the Titanic's going to make it, um, even though that was false because there were some flaws in, in the construction that people didn't become aware of until afterward. But that most people who had the belief, yes, this ship is seaworthy, and it's yeah. you know it's it's also a confluence of events that kind of showed that it wasn't. Yeah. Uh, that you know on a different trip maybe it would turn out to be totally seaworthy and would have worked. And so that's where part of what you're really digging into, and this is maybe the last, the last question I'll leave with Clifford is, so his thesis is only believe on sufficient evidence. In other words, you have to have good reasons. Yeah. Only when you have good reasons should you believe. The question is, what counts as evidence? Yeah, the authority. And so he says, this is, um, if you look at page 135, um, <laughs> the last two paragraphs of, of, of our reading. He says, uh, inquiry into the evidence of a doctrine is not to be made once for all and then taken as finally settled. It is never lawful to stifle a doubt for either it can be honestly answered by means of the inquiry already made or else it proves that the inquiry was not complete. But, says one, I'm a busy man. I have no time for the long course of study which would be necessary to make me in any degree a competent judge of certain questions or even able to understand the nature of the arguments. Then, he would have no time to believe. Notice what he's saying here. He is saying uh, that disbelief uh, is the default posture. In other words, you have to start everything from a position of disbelief. Uh, that it's only if you have enough time and energy. If somebody says, uh, capitalism is better than socialism, and you start to debate that, and then you realize, uh, I actually know very little about economics. 
or how the economic system works, um, that that he would say, well, then you you can't just say, well, some of the brightest minds in recent history and evidence and experience in the American context seems to show that capitalism is a good thing. He's saying you have yeah. to investigate that to the point where you can yourself fully articulate that and explain that. Or I think that that's at least to me that's what it sounds like he's saying. Or if somebody says. Um, why is there light in this room? And I say, because of electricity. How many of you can explain in detail why when I flip that switch, there's light in this room? I, I, <laughs> Derek, to, Derek can, to, to, to a degree. Um, right, but the point is like, I, I don't think I could. Right? In fact, I know I can't. And so the point is, am I, am I justified in my belief that we have light in this room because of Electricity, whatever that thing is. Substitute magic. <laughs> Maybe the same thing. Many people's minds. Why do you have light in this room? Magic. Magic. <laughs> uh, right? It means like this thing that I can't totally explain, which is basically what electricity and actually what technology is. This thing I can't explain. I don't know how it works. Um, and so, like, part of me, like, when I read this, I think, like, is this actually possible? Not just when you think about belief in God, but, like, you know, do you believe? How, how do you know somebody hasn't tampered with your car so that when you start, right now. start it, uh, it's going to like, like in a bad mob movie, the whole thing just blows up. Oh, it's so funny. Right? Like, how, you know, well, the point is, funny. Funny. Or, like, think about this. I mean, like, this, is, this is where, like, don't think about it too much because I don't want to, you have debilitating. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, debilitating disorders. But like, I mean, how do you know when you put your hand on that doorknob or go into any room and put your hand on a door? How do you know somebody hasn't put some kind of contagion oh, no. all it's, over that? Yeah. Right. You and so part. See, part of my question is, you know, Clifford's stuff sounds maybe sounds nice in a kind of philosophical vacuum. Yeah. Yeah. Come but on, it doesn't come actually on. work for yes. like how you have to live your everyday life. Which actually, I think, usually our everyday life shows that belief is more of our default posture. Like, I trust that somebody didn't tamper with my car. I trust that, you know, unless I have reason otherwise, you know, I, I trust that, you know, somebody's not trying to harm me. Um, and so we have to be, this is where we're going to go with reform epistemology for the next time, for next time, which really says it's actually valid to start from belief as your default posture rather than saying disbelief has to be everybody's default. Yeah, it's like when I read the sum it up, there's always wrong everywhere for anyone to believe anything upon insufficient evidence. For some reason, my mind went all the way back to when you're talking about like the burning house. Yeah. Like, so, what would like he have said? Okay, just don't believe it, or like to sit there and talk. Okay, now yeah. is my house burning? Do I yeah. see smoke? Or like, so I just got caught up on that. I yeah. What you have to say about that? Yeah, yeah that's, no, that, that's a really good analogy because I think that that fits right in with Pascal's point that. Um, if you try to reason your way through that conversation to a certain degree, uh, there comes a point at which you've lost what's at stake, right. potentially, your family, your house, and that that rather than trying to seek kind of proofs for that, there are some things that you have to maybe act on without the full proof you might otherwise want, yeah. because what's at stake demands that action, that belief, yeah. yeah. rather yeah. than yeah. first like, argue, like, spell this all out for yeah, and that 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 to have the default posture of belief then too that yeah I'm gonna believe that you're speaking correctly and yeah. not say now wait a minute I'm disbelieving that my house is on fire. Yeah, and and I think that that is, um, so my point here in highlighting belief, I'm not saying a kind of uncritical belief, right? A kind of belief that says, oh, I will never doubt. What anyone says, right? I will believe everything I see, hear, read. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying that, um, but the but the point is um, there there's something about this saying being so hardline like Clifford is like you have you cannot believe anything unless you have fully investigated it unless you can fully explain it then you can't believe it. It seems like the number of actual beliefs we can then validly hold. You can probably count on one or two hands. Yeah. Because there's very little that we can, that, that, that's the road to. And so that's where, to me, Pascal's threefold path 
actually seems much more reasonable and much more in line with how we actually do function that yeah, we, there are times when we need to use our critical faculties to doubt and improve, but then there are other times when we affirm, there are other times when we submit, and that all three of those are equally valid and in that way equally rational, reasonable paths to, paths to the truth. Um, again, you can even see how, yeah, this is where I would say, why it's reasonable to trust scripture. Because as I said earlier, if there is a God, then who is the expert on God? Well, God is. And so it's, it sounds kind of circular, but it's actually not. You're, you're saying that it's valid, a sufficient reason to believe something is trusting an expert on the topic. So just like, I mean, when I get on an airplane, I have no clue who's flying it, if it's worth flying, like, yeah. is it gonna make it? I, I'm trusting all these different factors, <coughs> but I would still say that's a, that's a good reason. Right? I'm trusting experts who have shown themselves to be trustworthy yeah. over time. That's not irrational or unreasonable. Right? In fact, it's kind of like if you're ever getting on a plane, the person who makes everybody else nervous is like the person who's like talking, is this okay, is this okay? Right? Like, they, they, like they want to themselves like inspect everything, and you're like, unless you're an airplane inspector, why well, you even know what you're doing, yeah. you're looking for. Yeah. Um, just like, I mean, think about the immense trust we place in medical experts. Like, I'm gonna go to the doctor, he's gonna tell me to take these pills. Okay. I have no clue what's in that. Amen. Right? I'm skeptical of those. But, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it's like, well, you know, I, I trust the experts. Oh, okay. Now, that, that, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean the experts are always 100% right. Yeah. Um, it, it right? Airplanes do crash, sorry to say. Yeah. Um, sometimes medications don't do what they're supposed to do, sorry to say. But on the whole, belief in doctors, belief in uh, your pilot, that's justified. Yeah. And so similarly, in a, in a when we think about this in the context of talking about our belief in God, similarly we'd say God's the expert on God, so it does make sense. It's not, it's not irrational, it's not unreasonable to say, what are you doing here? I'm trusting God. Yeah. That's exactly what you would want or expect in, in that kind of circumstance. Hey, Dr. Father. All right, yeah, any questions before like, we break? Like, does it point to rationality's own brokenness that like in, like the, the it, it like like the it alone can't like like that that's our word for like the, like not to uproot it entirely but to uproot it as as being like a soul S O L E like soul like God you know like like the point of some brokenness in that in that all the applicable examples when we get out of the vacuum you know the yeah. philosophical vacuum that in all these examples we we would make ourselves the judge like of like what will be sufficient, like what will be first believed, which like if like like if we're gonna presuppose belief or disbelief as the first thing, do we choose what side of that do we do we do we choose to disbelieve that this is safe or do we choose to disbelieve that this is unsafe? You know like like either way the like like rationality like 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 and I, I don't mean double rationality obviously not but but just like pointing that it as the as the lone guide is broken because in these cases we make ourselves the judge of, of, of how to navigate those things. So obviously we will need, we will need a, a further guidance in that being the living God. Yeah, yeah, and I think, and I would say not just the brokenness, but I would say even in a, even in a hypothetical perfect world, yeah. rationality is still gonna have limits. Mm. You know what I mean? So it's like yeah. by, by its very nature, there are certain limits to what it can do and to achieve. Uh, and so part of what we're doing is we're I think while like Pascal is, it's almost like saying, like if you think about, you say here's a beam that can support 10,000 pounds, okay? Then use that beam to support 10,000 pounds, but if you try to say, here we're gonna try to put 20,000 pounds on this beam and make it bear that load, what's gonna happen? It's not gonna hold up. And so his point is, rationality is good recognizing its limits, right? It has a limit and you use it that way, use it well, yeah. but don't try to push it beyond that or else it's actually gonna break. Yeah. Uh, and collapse, uh, and you're gonna get hurt in the process. So that's important. Too. Yeah. Like, uh, like something I'm just like thinking through the loud and um, like, like a problem like kind of like with the with like, a similar kind of way with, with like disbelief, like or belief. If we're gonna like make that like like the start um, again, like focusing on the problem of having this without God, just like rationale kind of concentrated on its own, like. If, if, if someone's walking on like a beam of some, of some sort and, and someone's saying, 
and, and, and I'm walking to, let's say, let's say I'm walking to the beam, let's say I chose to presuppose disbelieving in things. Yeah. Like, and someone shouts at me, that, that beam's gonna break. And I say, I disbelieve you, prove that to me. I disbelieve you, you know, but rewind, let's redo it again. I'm walking the, the beam, and someone says, it, and, I, and someone says to me, that beam will not break. And I say, ah, I disbelieve you. Prove it to me. You know, either way. Yeah. Like, so, so, like, so, like, like, like when someone walks by themselves to, to, to now discern the world with either presupposition, like, they, like, they, like, to the door of the car, like, like, they're choosing, they're either choosing to disbelieve its safety or choosing to disbelieve its, its danger. You know, like, like, someone say, oh, I'm just going to disbelieve everything. I'll start my car because I disbelieve that it's been tampered with. You know, it's like, yeah. either way, they're making themselves the authority to govern which way to disbelieve. We cannot make ourselves the sole, the, 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 the lone, like, authority. We need God, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's good. And that's a good segue. Uh, we'll come back. We'll think about William James. And not only God, but even to think about the role of the broader human community in beliefs and how we have beliefs and whether we're all kind of maybe on our own in quite the way that, that Clifford has it or if there's something else going on there. Um, so let's, let's take a break. Uh, let's plan to come back 20 minutes. So that's 1037. So we'll come back at that point and then uh, dig into James. Uh, so we'll get old. Maybe it must be the 